Welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner, Walid Amar, and Pradeep Tasigi. Today, we'll be talking about analyzing social media text with Brendan O'Connor. Brendan is an assistant professor at University of Massachusetts, Amherst. He develops text analysis methods that can help answer social science questions, including political sciences and sociolinguistics. Welcome to the program, Brendan. All right. Hello. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you. So could you start with telling us an example of a social science question you've studied by analyzing social media text? Sure. So lots of people are interested in analyzing social media in various ways. One thing you might hear about a lot is, say, market research. I want to know whether people like a particular product or a certain idea even. We might want to analyze a corpus of social media posts or online chatter that might give some insight into that. So do people feel positively or negatively about some commercial thing, for example, as a major application area? I've done a little bit of work on trying to find overall aggregate opinion people have about, say, how they feel about the economy by using some simple forms of sentiment analysis in that particular work, for example. And so there's all sorts of kind of social questions you might be able to address by analyzing this type of social media. And in my own work, I also look at other types of media also, but um, social media has kind of a lot of interesting particulars to it. So that's kind of like kind of social measurement questions. If we're trying to measure some underlying attribute that the authors have, so maybe the psychological states of the authors, or maybe even something that looks like more like information extraction, like have the authors being a particular type of thing that they've reported on, for example. You can imagine extracting all sorts of things like that for social media. Another use that I've been working more on recently is using social media as a corpus of just how people use language in general. And so this is work where we can find examples of people using casual everyday speech. So people use slang, people use creative terms, people will write in all sorts of ways that are informal varieties of language. And social media constitutes a huge written corpus of kind of casual dialects. There's no editors, there's no filters, especially fewer filters. Even, you can even get data before like autocorrect was common. And so, you know, no one teaches you how to tweet or like how to do Facebook posts. It's very different than more formal genres of writing, which are the kind of the most common or commonly analyzed, especially in natural language processing due to the history of what sorts of applications have been done. And so... You, you can find plenty of examples of this historically. Like centuries ago, there's arguably data, text data from centuries ago is actually more informal than 20th century data in some ways. But it depends a lot about corpus, what genre, etc. But social media just has all this amazing linguistic and creative diversity. People are combining ideas in all sorts of ways. And so there's just a lot going on. And of course, social media is important in our daily lives or even is an important social force also. So it's inherently important in some ways if you know you care about social media's effects on you know politics or something like that being able to analyze language data can be quite helpful for doing analysis um, or you know even people want to intervene right all those things could potentially be useful yeah any interesting findings or surprising findings that you that you found through these studies yeah sure so i'll talk about project on dialect variation that we've been doing here at umass amherst i was just working on some piece of it this morning so it's been on my mind and so uh, we wrote a paper at um, EMLP um, 2016, a few years ago now, this was with my student Sulin Blodgett and my colleague in linguistics, Lisa Green. And we took the view of analyzing social media as a corpus of kind of vernacular everyday language. And specifically, we try to analyze it to find language that's used in the United States 
that is more commonly used by people of certain ethnicities. And so we focus a lot on African Americans in the United States, and linguists know of and have established in a lot of research on a major variety of English called African American English. African American English has certain views of it in culture, but also has lots of very marked linguistic properties. So, for example, null copula, you can drop the to be verb under certain conditions. There's different types of preferable markers, different tense systems. There's all sorts of interesting things going on. And, of course, something that's interesting about it is that in terms of the corpus evidence for it, the standard written dialect of American English is not African American English. It's called standard or mainstream American English. And lots of the constructions in African American English are normatively frowned upon. And so speakers who speak it natively will use a more mainstream dialect if, you know, at work or in certain educational environments, all sorts of other, depends what type of world or people you're interacting with, what dialect you're going to use. And so there's not necessarily a ton of written corpus data for it. There, there is some. There is some, but it's much, much less than mainstream American English. And so in this study, we asked the question, can we use a social media corpus of publicly available posts? In particular, we use Twitter and geolocated tweets. And we wanted to see if we could extract a corpus of African American English from it. And so it turns out there's just a ton of African American English on Twitter. Lots and lots and lots. It's even self-acknowledged. There's thing called Black Twitter. You can even see this hashtag, Black Twitter. If you look at demographic surveys of Twitter, especially in its earlier days, Twitter was overrepresented by non-white people in the United States, especially African-Americans and Hispanics. And you can also see some casual use, like sometimes in like the top, if you look at the trending hashtags on the right side of Twitter, sometimes you click them and you're like, oh, wow. It's like this is a series of comments or jokes or something, and just like you look at the photos and like, well, every person looks non-white or African-American or something. It's like, just as kind of anecdotal evidence, seems like something's going on. And so, I mean, it's not a surprise, but we found uh, lots of examples of dialect at kind of the linguistic level from Twitter. And in particular, we looked at tweets that were sent by people who were writing posts where they tended to be in highly African-American neighborhoods in the United States. And so this is using geolocated tweets that have the particular version of the data we're using actually had latitude longitude coordinates and cross-reference those against demographics from the U.S. Census for particular, we actually use neighborhood level demographics there. And so we had a mixed membership model that tried to learn which terms tend to be used by people who are in highly African-American neighborhoods versus people in highly white neighborhoods versus other demographic categories. And it also learned that a model where every individual author had a mixture of just an admixture, like a LDA-style mixed membership model, of these different unigram language models are associated with the different demographic factors in the United States, acquiring our interpretive census data. And so the unigram distribution associated with African-American geographic populations in the United States contained lots and lots of terms that display all these patterns known in African-American English. And so, for example, dropping the final R from a word, you can find examples of that where it's spelled that way. Even in particular words, so you get, you know, a slightly higher probability of the word gonna, just G-O-N-N-A, but you get a lot higher probability of the word uh, gone, so G-O-N, spelled in that way. 
And so that corresponds to a real word that people use in everyday language associated with African-American English. Another example is FINNA, F-I-N-N-A. That's a shortening of fixing to. Um, that's a preverbal marker that indicates kind of immediate future tense. Instead of you saying, I'm going to eat breakfast, say, I'm finna eat breakfast, you're going to eat breakfast, but very soon, or you really want to do it. And again, that's something that's um, not just African-American English, but some varieties of English in the U.S. South. Um, and it's things that you don't see in the New York Times, but there's just you know, thousands, thousands of examples of this on Twitter. And so the model really picks up on these. I mean, they have distinct geographic patterns of usage that correspond to African-American populations in the U.S., at least in our analysis. And so we found all this information about it, and we can even extract subcorpora from Twitter based on it. And we had a number of findings. We're looking at examples of linguistic phenomena, so trying to use the evidence to help do further linguistic research. We also found examples of implications for NLP systems on kind of the fairness and bias level. So if there's a different variety of English, it shouldn't be surprising, but tools that are typically constructed for mainstream American English will tend to work a lot worse. So even things like language identification, we're finding it has a higher kind of false negative rate for identifying that these messages are English. And so like a lot of the words are spelled quite differently than in mainstream American English, for example. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I would like to elaborate on this later, but I wanted to first ask you, in this paper, did you also study the, the new terms transfer geographically across different cities in the United States? Yeah, that was a paper with Jacob Eisenstein, published in 2014. There, what we were looking at is we're really interested in the transfer of terms. If when new terms are arising, where do they tend to arise first? Or more generally, when a term is a high frequency in one geographic area, does it tend to become high frequency in other geographic areas later? There are a number of sociolinguistic theories of what drives language change. And we're focused on seeing, for example, is it like geographic distance that makes a big difference? Or is it more based on kind of demographic similarity? So looking at like um, racial and ethnic and other distributions. So that's an, another sort of analysis, kind of, again, more on the sociolinguistic side that you can do with social media analysis. And that, again, takes advantage of the fact that social media as a corpus exists. And it's something we, we haven't had audio recordings of thousands of people in dozens of cities across the U.S. Like, we don't really have those streams. But on social media, we kind of do. They're, like, noisy and complicated. They're driven by online-specific phenomena. And, you know, for this analysis, we actually did not want to get trending hashtags. We tried to exclude things like that. Um, but, you know, you can do very different things with social media, of course. And, of course, and that analysis also looks a lot at the time dimensions. The time dimension is quite interesting, too. And there's been lots of interesting work in different aspects of that. So going back to the problem with the fact that NLP tools don't work as well on African-American language and other dialects, I think the first question is how bad is this problem? And the second question would be what can we do about it? How bad, you know, really depends on the task. It depends what you're doing. The accuracies can be quite a bit worse. On We looked a lot of language identification and um, dependency parsing are the main things we looked at. And dependency parsing differences are like, you know, 10 points of difference or something like that. It's in the realm of the types of improvements that computational LLP researchers typically do to improve parsers, it's just much, much larger than that. This is a standard thing that we kind of know in NLP, that like what the data is and where the data comes from. Does the training data match the runtime data or evaluation data? Those things just matter so much. And here are cases where, you know, it's a whole bunch of the words in the tweet aren't in a standard English dictionary. Like, of course, <laughs> the person is going to do a terrible job, right? Like the example that we like to use is the word AF that became really popular in English 
maybe starting a number of years ago, and it's in our data. Especially in the early days, it's heavily associated with African-American um, neighborhoods. I think it's more mainstream at this point. Um, but it means like as F, right? Uh, can we swear on this podcast? I think it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you say like, I'm tired as fuck, right? So I'm tired AF. And so AF is one word, it's one token. And it's kind of like an adverb, but it comes after, right? So it's like a little bit unusual. But like, you know, as a full phrase, like, yeah, we all know how to do that. And you can do that with, you know, standard English grammar. But for a, like a dependency parser that hasn't seen this word, like it thinks it's like a noun or a verb or something. And it just destroys the rest of the parse, right? <laughs> and so, you know, just like unknown words, like it's not going to be a pretty sight to any NLP system. And so... That's definitely a thing. Just unknown words get those right. And there are some issues with kind of the deeper structures also. So a null copula, like if you say he good, you can say that in African-American English and some other varieties of English means he is good. In African-American English, actually, you can't always drop the copula. There's only certain conditions. So you can't use it with a first person pronoun, for example. But again, so that's a thing where it's maybe not obvious for a syntactic parser that's trained on standard American English texts where it's very rare to drop a copula. And so we found that contemporary syntactic dependency parsers also make those sorts of errors. The difference can, can be quite large, especially when there's large changes, lots of unknown words. So there's a whole bunch of things that can be done to fix the problem. In some ways, the simplest thing to do is collect a bunch of labeled data for the dialect or language variety you want to target and then retrain things. And so we've done some small-scale efforts to do some re-annotation. There's been a bunch more now. There's a bunch of things you could do there. Another thing to do is to figure out how to use data that is in a related language. And so most obviously, if you have a whole bunch of standard American English data, can you train on that and somehow adapt it to target the a language variety that's quite close to mainstream American English, but far away enough that your performance is off, and then try to adapt the system to that. And so, for example, we've done some experiments with just retraining word embeddings on kind of a large, basically unlabeled corpus that has a lot of AAE or has a lot of online-specific language. And if you incorporate those into a dependency parser, it does improve the dependency parser. And work I did at Carnegie Mellon, actually, when I was a grad student, examined um, part of speech tagging for Twitter where we actually used word clusters back then, but learning representations from Twitter itself instead of using word clusters from standard corpora, and that helps a lot. And in fact, that work actually, the part of speech tagger, is a lot more performant on African-American English compared to at least some um, more kind of standard English trained ones. So those things all can help, and they can be used in different ways. A number of groups have done all sorts of things. You can do all sorts of domain adaptation approaches. This group in Singapore has done a lot of work with the stacking for syntactic parsers to do domain adaptation. And there's a lot of very relevant research in um, highly related languages and low resource languages where the really big problem is like it's just so expensive to get annotated data, especially for an under-resourced language variety that you want to be able to find some ways of doing it that don't involve, you know, collect a million labeled examples now. Can you give us an estimate of the data sizes? You mentioned that African-American English is under-resourced, right? So uh, how many tweets do you think we can scrape if we wanted to, say, collect a dependency parsing data set? If you want just unlabeled tweets that are probably display AAE constructs or from authors who typically who often use AAE, so that's closest to what I've done to and it's just a much higher proportion compared to what you see in newspapers, you know, it's like zero newspapers, right? 
I mean, there probably are tens of millions of AA speakers, like just like in the world. It's not an obscure language variety. It's not an obscure dialect of English, definitely not. But it's very unbalanced in terms of the language resources available. And I mean, that's what happens when you have dialects associated with marginalized groups and marginalized communities. And this happens all over the world, all sorts of language varieties. You see very similar sort of thing. You know, like Hindi is under-resourced. Like Hindi is one of the most spoken languages in the world, but the amount of resources is drastically smaller than you would expect for the number of speakers. So a lot, a lot of examples like that. And so for for Twitter, I'm just getting many, many thousands. I'm going to hesitate to give you an exact order of magnitude because <laughs> I feel I haven't nailed this question as well as I'd like. But there's just lots of data out there. And of course, people, many people have done work on, you know, Arabic dialects and all sorts of other language varieties where getting these kind of vernacular chatter sorts of cases could give you more. I mean, the trickier thing is if you want to, you know, create a tree bank or something of doing annotation with requires a lot of linguistic training. It's just a handful. So University of Washington annotated uh, several thousand, I believe, of tweets, some of which included, I think, a fair amount of AAE with universal dependencies. We annotated a small number with universal dependencies also. And so there's, it's really kind of a collection of a handful of things in this particular case. And so I'm not aware of really large-scale annotation projects. I mean, it could be done, right? There's definitely plenty of potential. So... So how much of a problem is it to actually recognize which tweets contain African American language or other varieties of English? Because you can use just certain terms that you know and look them up, or you can like look up certain uh, users you know speak a lot of African American. We do different versions of this in different places. And there have been, in the research literature, different versions have been used. So, for example, there's a nice study by um, Anna Jurgensen, Dirk Hovey, and colleagues where they kind of specified up front, here are well-known markers of African-American English that we can draw from the linguistics literature, because it's already been studied a fair amount, and then look for authors that use those sorts of markers. You can do that sort of thing. You can also use geographic indicators. So, particularly geographies where a lot of African-Americans live, for example, you'd be able to analyze you be able to get uh, messages from there. And so you can identify messages or authors in these ways. And so what we ended up doing in our work is we use this geographic level information as the only initial real statistical indicator. So there's some ways in which that's a little less biased than some of these other ones. So I'd say like, okay, well, you know, you can look at the linguistics literature and get these nice feature tables of different terms that are used, but does that really capture everything that's currently going on? that capture everything of like, you know, young adults or teenagers who are currently using social media that maybe they weren't included in the 1990s study that we're drawing from. And so we want to say, okay, well, let's let the metadata of our corpus really tell us this full story. So we started there, but then to validate what the model found, we drew very heavily on the previous literature of looking at particular combinations of phonological variants of particular words and things like that. But again, this is a case where there's been a fair amount of study on African-American English, seeing so you take a reasonable amount of kind of the pre-existing linguistics literature to look at it. So when you use the geographical information, the metadata, how do you isolate subpopulations that do not speak African-American? We don't try to infer like social identity at the individual level. Some work does, but it's problematic for lots of reasons. It's difficult to do. You can't really get ground truth for some of these. For some identity course categories, it's just really fuzzy. Like if you want to do I mean, African Americans, one thing. If you want to do like Hispanic Americans, people have more complex non-single membership identities sometimes, right? So what we end up doing is we rely really heavily on this kind of mixture idea 
And so the idea is that, well, when you're speaking or, or writing social media messages, you could use multiple different language varieties, which really just for us just means unigram language models, but you could be an admixture of them in different proportions, right? So maybe using 60% of variety one and 40% of variety two, and you can switch between them at the message level, even at the token level. So it's, an, it's implicitly a code switching model. For the, some people, it might be 90% of one, but only 10% of two. Primitive topic model is exactly what the theta vector on a topic model is. And so um, we use that, but we're not really a topic model because we're much more supervised. But the idea is that you can get those, but then you can look at messages that the model thinks has a high posterior proportion of words that come from the AAE topic or Unigram language model versus ones that had a very low proportion. So what we do is we look at those, and to do linguistic validation, we compare those different sets of messages to well-known constructions that the prior linguistic literature has already identified are part of AAE or associated with AAE. While we're talking about data collection and using users' data, ethical consideration comes up all the time about when researchers use people's data. So do you have any thoughts around what are the ethical considerations that we should be doing as NLP researchers using Twitter data, best practices? It really depends on what the use is and what the application is, for sure. And the expectations and standards around this are moving, and they're moving quite fast in some cases. Because there's just, you know, well-known cases of companies doing social media analysis that really don't seem to be in the interests of people. And so, you know, scandals around Cambridge Analytica, for example, which I would argue is a very different case than some things we're talking about here. But it's worth taking into consideration everything. And so I think we should only be studying, well, I don't want to make categorical things, but analyzing only messages that were publicly available is a big thing. And you at least have some license that maybe it's okay to study those. But it is not entirely unproblematic. Like, users may not know that their information could be destined for a study. You can say things like, okay, well, internally, the major internet companies are doing their own forms of analysis on these things. So what we're doing is pretty similar. But again, users, author of these messages may not be aware of that. And there's real questions of, like, if someone just posts a message publicly, like, what sort of research analysis can you do of it? And so one very rough consensus is doing aggregate analyses of publicly available data makes a lot of sense. But if you're, you know, writing a paper and pulling out individual messages, it's maybe not as good to single out a certain person's message. And especially don't do it showing the screen name, for example, or the name of the author. And that seems to be kind of a reasonable standard. And again, more recent that's kind of come about, I think. But there's, there's different standards. I mean, some folks who work on social media and kind of the computer-mediated communication literature, some more, if you think about people more like communications departments doing quali more qualitative analysis or, you know, sociolinguistics in some cases, there are some standards like, well, you should not even ever publish or use in a presentation the actual complete text of a tweet. You should make sure to change a few words so that person can't be looked up. So that's also a reasonable standard. But if you're thinking about, you know, large-scale data analysis or even large-scale data release, that's maybe less feasible. And I think we don't know how to do that at a larger scale. But for something like presentations, like, it, it seems like a reasonable thing to do. When I was first working on this, there were not a lot of concerns about the privacy of messages that were originally posted publicly. And, like, I really wasn't aware that, you know, this could be a, a, a better way of doing things. So this is another case that's definitely changed. There's also ethical considerations to just what research is done. So some research just, like, sounds creepier, right? And, like, this is different. And so I think 
people seem to be willing to give us benefit of the doubt that we're doing something that looks more like scientific linguistics research or scientific sociolinguistics research. But every social media application, you can imagine much more nefarious or problematic versions of it. And so, you know, demographic prediction, it's like, oh, is that just to like sell ads to more people, for example? Or maybe it's to do like social scientific studies of like populations in the United States, right? right? There's a lot of questions there. And we are seeing people work through these in different ways right now. And so there's a lot of questions there. I feel like I don't have great answers for all of that. Have you ever personally received any angry emails or communication from people who like thought that your work was unethical in certain ways? Not about this. No, nothing like this. But I mean, I don't know. That, that doesn't really tell you much, right? It could be just like no one's reading our papers. <laughs> you never well, know, right? Well, the other thing I was wondering about, is, so I, I remember seeing on your homepage recently something about recent research about quantifying police brutality. And this is the kind of thing that I imagine a lot of people would be angry about and you'd be receiving like a lot of angry emails or communication. I think there's a lot of randomness in how these things go out. Like I know of some studies in social media areas hitting political topics that if they get into the press in the right place, a lot of people get mad about it. You can find equally potentially problematic things that just never hit that. And so this police killings work doesn't. And so the police killings work, I should say, does not use any social media data at all. It uses all mainstream news sources, so we think it doesn't hit any of these privacy sorts of concerns. But that was a project to use information extraction, so find instances of police killing civilians, so very concrete, I guess not so simple, but <laughs> concrete event extraction, sort of knowledge-based population task. Even then, so aside from the ethical side of collecting data from Twitter or social media, I imagine some people would still have a lot of feelings, you know, about like the findings in a paper like this. Right, right, definitely. Um, so the area of African-American English, the, I guess we kind of, I didn't mention too much of the history of it, but there's a, you know, long politically charged series of arguments and controversies around it based on, I think, what linguists would consider misunderstandings of what a language variety is. So it's like these kids aren't speaking English wrong. There's no structure to so-called African-American English. It's just random words. And it's like those things are all false, right? There's a real language variety. It has grammar. And it's interesting because it's like different than mainstream American English. But because of the social perceptions of it, there's definitely people can get mad about policies that are involved in this research. And so there have been controversial examples about, you know, what is the role of AAE in education, for example. And so there's this certain strains of language conservatism that say, like, well, we should not promote these dialects of English that I, as a language conservative, think are normatively bad or should not be promulgated more. There's a certain extent this always occurs to a certain extent, like the point of a mainstream language variety is force everyone to use it so we can all communicate with each other. And all countries do this in different degrees in different ways, right? But there's a lot of normative, they turn what scientifically from linguistics perspective, perspective are very descriptive questions about language, very easily turn into normative ones. When you're talking about things like policy, right? Because, you know, there's a very good case to be made, like, well, you should be, all students should be learning the mainstream variety. You need it to, like, do well in the world. But the question is, what is the level of, say, promotion or even respect for a minority language dialect? And this gets into questions of just how do we want to engage with languages in the world. And so research on African-American English, not, not my research, but other people's research, it definitely has gotten caught up in political stuff sometimes. And so... 
that could be a form of ethical consideration you could think about. From the natural language processing perspective, we haven't seen too much of this yet. I do wonder, there's so many social assumptions embedded in these NLP systems we could think are in a very complete technical way. So just like, you know, like a machine translation service does really badly on the languages of some speakers of the world. And like those things correlate to social factors. Like, like, are you a speaker of a language from one of the countries that was colonizing the world a few centuries ago? One of the countries that was being colonized? That really correlates to the accuracy of the the machine translation you have. Uh, like you can translate between French and English, great. Like there's there's a reason, there's a historical reason that for that case, right? You could also think of machine translation as a purely technical problem, right? But at the same time, it's being built upon this data that has all this kind of social source, and you know when you look at EU Parliament or something, it's a little distant from that. And social media is much more immediate that people with all their different attributes are there. But I really think the same things are going on in all forms of NLP and how it connects to social stuff in general. And so that's why I'm very very interested in this area of computational social science. And so we could use computers to understand society. But also this kind of emerging thread of thinking about findings from the social sciences or ways of doing social analysis or social policy that can help inform how we want to create artificial intelligence or language technologies and thinking about what sorts of biases we're going to get in our data, for example, or for what the eventual uses are, how is that going to affect that? Totally. So digging a little more about the biases, any data that we use in order to do any sort of analysis will have some biases. And I wonder, what kind of biases do you think we should be thinking about when we're using social media data to answer or to attempt an answer for social science questions? Oh, yeah, yeah. So if you want to do, like, figure out people's opinion about X. The big bias that everyone points to immediately that is always very major is just who the heck are the authors that you're analyzing, especially when you're dealing with a system, um, Twitter's like this, where you don't necessarily know very much about the authors. Arguably, this is why malicious actors can push misinformation. Like, you can totally create a bunch of fake accounts that sound plausible enough that will engage with people and people can retweet their stuff, right? But if you're thinking about it from may you want to do market research, may you want to do political science research, you have the same sort of questions, just like how real are these people? What exactly are these people doing? What does it mean? And that is a huge form of bias. It's a bias in the sense you want to relate to, you know, the overall population distribution of a particular country or something like that. It's a huge thing, right? So that's like one source of bias you always have to think about when you're analyzing social media. And so the second one, which I guess my work we were talking about earlier has something more to do with, is bias from the language analysis system. So like if you have a language pipeline that throws out everything that's non-English, and then you say, okay, let's do sentiment analysis on things my language pipeline thought was English. It's like, okay, well, if your language ID was biased, then you're going to get a biased result, right? And so I personally am very interested in these kind of like, I want to figure out, you know, the statistical prevalence of, you know, positive versus negative sentiment around something. And so this would affect that. But even a more basic thing, it's like, okay, well, I want to analyze what Americans think. It's like, well, I just throw out all Spanish speakers if I did that, right? That's almost like too obvious. Even something that's like major world language canonical form of Spanish, it's like, well, you need to analyze that also. 
And I think we don't know at a technical level what's a good way of combining multilingual sentiment, for example, or what does it mean to do that fairly is a really interesting question, I think. And there's many different ways to encode fairness there, and you have to be really careful about explaining what exactly you want. But there seems to be some need about there's, you know, maybe different social groups, different social perspectives you want to represent in some way. And so I think that's a really big thing, different types of language, different language variability, and what language resources are you using? So if you have a, so, you know, lexicon-based sentiment classifiers are pretty popular among researchers, usually more outside NLP who are doing sentiment analysis and want something quick that works, works reasonably well. An interesting question is, does a particular lexicon work that well on social media? Or does it work well on a particular sub-slice of social media you care about? This isn't quite biased, but unknown sources of variability when you just don't know your corpus very well. And so, you know, I can give you some guesses about what the EU Parliament sort of proceedings are going to look like. But if you give me a random set of tweets that were filtered in some way, I usually don't have a good idea of what I'm going to see from them. And it's like, maybe these are messages from young adults who are coordinating what they're going to do late in the day for fun. Or is it people who are making like strident political arguments about something? Or there's just a thousand different sub-communities or sub-slices of the world on social media. There's like very official communication, there's very casual communication, there's creativity that follows particular trends, there's people who just kind of say mundane things about they're happening in the day, and all these things are kind of mixed together in a social media corpus in a way that I think is a little different from other genres like news or novels where you can expect a little bit more about even just what the communication act, the speech acts are and those things. And so that is a form of, I guess you call it bias. But it's like a kind of unknown variability. You don't really know what you're going to get out. It makes it really hard to interpret aggregated statistics in some ways. So I think these are all potential sources of, you call them bias, or kind of social effects that you really need to think about. And that's going to affect how you interpret your natural language processing or things like that. Uh, also, collecting data from Twitter mm-hmm. will probably come with an inherent sampling bias too, right? I mean, not everyone mm-hmm. has access to Twitter and maybe not everything on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, not even sure how you can account for that. I think being aware of what sorts of just makeup of the population that you can expect. The very basic one is different online services have different distributions of demographics and even just the, which countries the populations come from. And is basic aggregate level statistical data about this. So a lot of us who work in this area usually cite um, a number of surveys done by the Pew Center in the United States on um, demographic characteristics of all the social media services. We can say, okay, that, that's why I know that you know non-white minorities were overrepresented in Twitter a lot in the early days, but now it's more even, right? They just you know ask people, what is, are you black, are you white, or what? And whether you use Twitter, whether you use Instagram, whether you use YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. So getting those statistics actually helps a lot, and those is, I think, explain a lot about kind of you know creative, non-standard linguistic behavior we see on Twitter. Those statistics also show that like Facebook is a lot more representative than Twitter. It's a larger percentage of Americans, at least. And you know, certain countries like you know Russia doesn't use Facebook; they have a different system. But Facebook is the major in a whole bunch of other countries. And of course, the systems in China are completely different than the others. And you just have to like know these things, or you can know about them. That can help give some context for the work. Beyond that. There's just very specific things for whatever you're analyzing. Like maybe you just want to analyze immigrant communities in Queens, New York or something. And it's like, well, that's just its own world. Like every every little subslice is going to be its world. Maybe you only want to analyze uh, what people are saying about um, gun shooting episodes in the United States. So there's a nice paper from um, the Stanford group about this uh, a year ago or so. 
and there's you're know, connecting more to kind of mainstream US political discourse there. But there's going to be all sorts of different biases about who's speaking, who's participating. I mean, Twitter has a reputation for like younger, more liberal people, but it depends what corner of Twitter you're looking at, what authors you're looking at, etc. You can select them in very different ways and get very different results. And so I think that's all just really important to look at. And this is kind of a setting where natural language processing is, you know, one tool in the toolkit. But if you kind of want to analyze, you know, overall social analysis, a whole overall social system, there's all this other stuff going on at the same time. And so I think it's a lot of exciting research problems, like you want to intermix all these things. But if you want to kind of hammer down the particular social analysis, you might have to make, you know, rough and ready decisions about some of these, some of these factors. Yeah, so with all these biases in mind, there is an argument that it's pointless to try to do computational social science on social media text because of all these biases that we know of. Are there in your mind certain questions that are easier to answer? What are the characteristics of a problem or a question that has to do with social science that is easier to answer through social media text? Anything where you can reliably establish kind of a subpopulation of authors or types of messages from a particular social media system, and knowing something about that little world could be of interest, then, then it's going to work. Do you want to know something about the overall distribution of all people in the United States? That's going to be difficult just because it reaches different groups. And there's interesting research how to do that. Maybe you could reweight by demographics or something. And there's questions about how to do this. You could argue that online surveys have similar issues. But that's always going to be hard. So you're saying the more we can target a certain, uh, a narrower criteria, and if we can like capture lots of users on social media who exhibit this criteria, then our analysis will be probably easier to do using this data compared to trying to find these people in the wild. What I've noticed is I get the impression that a lot of the studies have moved more in the direction of analyzing phenomena that are kind of specific to online systems. You know, in the real world, we know that social media might affect politics. And so, therefore, it's interesting to analyze how politics is treated on social media. And whether it represents the larger population is almost a separate question in some way. It's just like, how are the dynamics of political misinformation, for example, how do they work on social media? That's an interesting question. There's a lot of research questions, social scientific questions about that. And if you're analyzing that, I'm like, okay, that's, that, that's a thing you can do, right? Using it as data source for all social sciences, I really think it's just one piece of the puzzle. There's a lot of different data sources. Social science is just so broad, right? Like, are we talking about health policy? Are we talking about international relations? Are we talking about economics? There's just so many things going on. For anything, it's like sometimes you'll find something interesting in social media, but sometimes you may not. And it's not so good to kind of track yourself into it. And so, like, a lot of my research uh, is often using you know, just mainstream news, right? You can use a lot of different data sources for different things, for sure. You know, in computational social sciences, I mean, there's so many. Computational social sciences, even specific to text analysis, the way that is really done from kind of social science perspective is just researchers who are interested in a particular area are going to choose corpora that could be interesting for that. And so going from the other direction, like we have social media here, things we can try to apply it to, I think is a little less effective. I mean, there, there's a reason people do it, of course. And, you know, I've tried to do a little bit of this also. But it's like, you know, if you care a lot about political documents, like maybe you should analyze those if you already have a reason to care about them, right? And so, you know, humanists analyzing, you know, um, historical corpora of books, for example. Like there's research questions tied specifically to those. The broader question I'm interested in is we think about 
using natural language processing as kind of a methodology to answer social science questions. So many things like sentiment analysis, many things like narrative analysis, just all sorts of things. How do we do that in broad ways that can work on lots of different corpora? And so social media, I think, is kind of an interesting and important example of a text genre that is, is relatively new, and so we're still learning a lot about it. But it can be useful in lots of settings because we're getting a lot of kind of casual, unfiltered, or less filtered conversations from everyday people. And that's kind of an exciting thing about it. So there's a lot to do. Yeah, thank you for explaining this. So that's all I had. Uh, did you have any other thoughts that you wanted to share on the on this episode? Um, I think, that, yeah, I mean, more people should work in social media, natural language processing. It just raises so many questions. There's so many, like, if you look at working, like, how do you do word segmentation for hashtags? Like, that's hard. It's just word segmentation is hard, right? But, like, people just have all these creative and different forms of writing things. And it's like, well, but people are language users. So people can understand and invent and interpret new types of conventions all the time. And if you just like, like random samples of tweets, you'll just find so many of these things. And there's lots of interesting computational questions that are raised by them. And there's lots of interconnections to kind of the social context around authoring of messages, which is it's just very obvious in social media context. But to some extent, it's important for all of language. All of language is in social context. All our use of language is for communication, or debatably a very large part of it. And these things are really important. And social media, they kind of come to the forefront. And so I think there's a lot of problems that are kind of exciting and hard on social media. Um, how does conversation context come into play? How do people present themselves differently to other people? Like all sorts of things. It's very rich area, really exciting. And there's just like tons of things to do. Some things are very computational in nature. How do you deal with network structure and an algorithm? Because networks are really important for social structure. To kind of these more social side questions. How do power dynamics affect how people talk about each other? Can we get evidence of this from social media? So just all, all sorts of things. I think it's a great area. Yeah, a few years ago, I think there was a surge in work and NLP, uh, like focusing on social media, but I think it didn't sustain for very long. I'm not sure why. Maybe people thought it's not as much appreciated by other researchers in the area. Like, Yeah, so like, we think it's cool. I don't know. <laughs> people should be looking at it. I mean, there's always social media tracks at the main NLP conferences now. Really social media-centric research tends to be in, you know, different conferences that focus more on that. So ICWSM has social media in the title, so therefore it is the most... <laughs> It's the most centric, but kind of in like kind of more like web or HCI sorts of communities. Um, but there are lots of NLP-specific problems that are raised by social media data or that you need to tackle in order to do social media analysis. So that tends to be more of what you see at the main NLP conferences. And so, yeah, so this year ACL has a social media and computational social science is the area. And so that is, I think that's a good combination to put these things in. So there should be more of that. Some years we have as a full area, some years not, but it's pretty consistent now. Um, there's a lot of workshops looking at different aspects of it because you can think of it as a noisier form of text. It's kind of like well-edited text, but it has it has like misspellings and just straight-out typos, right? At the same time, sometimes those things that look like misspellings are really alternate spellings of something else that's going on. These phenomena kind of like happen next to each other. You have to deal with them all at once. You need models that can deal with non-canonical word variants. I guess we put everything in embedding spaces now, so maybe that's a little bit easier. But you, you need to deal with a lot of variability, a lot of very different things. And these settings, are, they're just always harder for natural language processing technologies. It's always harder for them to analyze these, this, this sort of higher variability language. So it's 
lot of great challenges, I think. Yeah, lots of un- uh, understudied problems there. So thank you for sharing your thoughts on this topic. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much. Take care. Thanks, Brennan.